The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord God, thank you for the church. Thank you that we get to gather here today with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we get to feast on your grace together. We get to feast through singing praises to you, through hearing your word spoken to us. We get to feast as we pray together, as we commune together in the Lord's Supper. Thank you, God, for the church. Thank you for creating her and sustaining her. Pray, God, today that as your church, we would enjoy the feast that you have before us in your scriptures. May it change us and transform us and nourish us to be your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For any travel enthusiast, New York City is a bucket list destination. But if you're old enough, you know that it was not always that way. Earlier this year, in the New York Times, they I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in, one, in one magazine, I can't remember what magazine it was here, uh, in Newsweek, that's what it was, there was an article that described the amazing comeback of New York City. The New York City in the 1960s and 70s was much different than the one of today. The streets were filthy, crime was at the highest level in history, heroin and cocaine, cocaine epidemic sweep through the city, many neighborhoods had fallen into despair. The situation in New York got continually worse. There were many reforms in which they were trying to save money and balance the budget, and so subway fares rose. They closed several schools and hospitals and reduced salaries. They also cut many of the government workers, 50,000 of them, one-sixth of them to be exact. As a result of it, there was this great revolt. The garbage men went on strike, and when the garbage men go on strike, that doesn't make your city any more beautiful. But not only the garbage men went on strike, but also teachers went on strike, and then the police force went on strike, because 11,000 of the policemen were cut. They rebelled by publishing a book titled, Welcome to Fear City a survival guide for visitors to the city of New York. And they would give it out to visitors as they came to the city. And then they published two other guides, which is, if you haven't been mugged yet, and the other one was, when it happens to you. And they gave these to New York residents to warn them about the dangers because of the reduced police force. New York was so bad that they went to the national government to ask for funds to help rebuild the city, but President Gerald Ford was adamant that New York should receive no bailout from Washington, which led to the famous headline from the New York Daily News that said, Ford to city, drop dead. New York desperately needed something to change. Now around this time, New York State decided to start a a campaign, an advertising campaign to help rebuild the image of New York City. And so the New York State Department of Commerce developed an advertising campaign, and they reached out to a graphic designer named Milton Glasser, who composed many famous 
uh, posters and things of that sort, and they asked him to create a logo for the city. And so in the back of a taxi cab on his way to the meeting with the agency, he came up with this logo to declare his love and commitment to a dying city. How many of you have seen this logo before? Anyone? Has anyone not seen this logo? It's okay. All right. All right. Young children maybe haven't. He didn't think too much of it at the time, and he gave it over to the city for free. But this logo, I Heart New York, became a a common logo throughout New York City. If you go to New York today, you'll see it all over the place. In fact, there are stores, merchandise stores, that only specialize in merchandise with this applied to it. Needless to say, three years after this logo started being used by the city, by, by airlines, by, by, by tourist travelers, and the mainstream media had written that New York, who was in a slow death, had made an amazing comeback because of what was happening in the city, because of the love of the city. Travel writers who visited New York in 1978 wrote about how beautiful the renovated hotels were and how spectacular the five-star restaurants were. And so visitors started flooding, flooding back into the city. People started flooding back into the city. And then this article ends with this question. It says, So did I Love New York help create a brand for New York City? It did more than that. It pretty much saved New York City. If you look at the statistics, there is another people group on the decline. It is the church. From 2007 to 2014, those who would report themselves as religiously unaffiliated rose 6.5%. Those non-Christian religions rose 1.5%. And during that same time, evangelicals, Catholics, and mainline Protestants all decreased to 0.9, by 0.9% up to 3.4%. You know, I recently had lunch with an acquaintance who was on staff with a church in, in the region. And he was on staff with this church for a long time. And as I was having lunch with him, I asked him, I said, where do you go to church these days? He said, well, you know, we don't really go to church. We slip in and out every once in a while to this mega church, but we really don't do church because I kind of got burnt out on the whole church thing. I was talking to another friend who is in vocational ministry. And I asked him, I said, where do you go to church? He's like, we're bad Christians. We really don't go to church. I know so many people, maybe you know a lot of people too, who claim to be Christians but do not go to church. Unless, of course, it is their baptism, their funeral, Easter, or Christmas. Friends, there are many today who hate the church because they have wounded, been wounded by the church or beaten down by her. And yet there are many more who are indifferent towards the church because they see it as irrelevant and outdated and completely unnecessary. Now the problem with this is that Christ loves his church. The church is the people of God. The church is the beloved bride of Christ. The church is the plan of God for the redemption of the world. It is of the church that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christians, church, in a time when criticizing church seems so in vogue, now is a time that we, along with our Savior and our God, must declare, I love the church. 
If you would, please open up to Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 today. It's page 929 in the Red Bible and page 1207 in the Children's Bible. We are in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey. And if you remember from last week, we saw the end of his ministry in Ephesus. He was there for two or three years. And during that ministry of proclaiming the gospel, he was undermining the idols of Ephesus. And so the craftsmen who benefited from that idolatry through a revolt and uproar, and they dragged some of Paul's companions into the theater, and they did it to intimidate them, to prosecute them, and to try to kick them out of Ephesus, but the town clerk quiets down this rebellion, this uproar. And that's where we're going to get into today's passage in a little bit. Now, today's passage, again, is is Paul's third missionary journey. And for most part, it looks like a travel itinerary. And so upon first reading it, I thought to myself, great, I get to preach a travel itinerary. How fun shall this be? But as we look deeper into this passage, what we are going to see is a loud declaration of how God and of how Paul loves the church. And we can apply this to our own life, how we can foster a love for the church if our love has diminished, and how we can declare our love for the church. And so that's what we want to look at today. How can we foster our love for the church, and how can we declare our love for the church? And the first way is by investing our lives into the church. Look at verse 1 with me. Acts 20, verse 1 and 2. After the uproar ceased in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Up to this point... The Apostle Paul was mostly busy with pioneer work. He would go and he would plant churches in new areas. But here in Acts chapter 20, Paul goes to revisit all of the churches that he had planned. And he goes, it's kind of like a farewell tour, as we'll see later, as he journeys towards Rome. And so what we read about, if we look at the map up here, is there a map? There we go. So Paul is in Ephesus, and we read that he goes up through Macedonia, And he comes all the way down to what says Greece, which is probably this area, and he most likely came to Corinth. And so he went through and visited all of these churches which he had planted on his second missionary journey. And so that's how Paul was traveling. Now the question is, why did Paul do this? Why did Paul go back to all of these churches? Why didn't he go into new territory and continue to pioneer church plants? Well, as we look at this, it becomes very obvious that it's not because Paul was going to look for a good church with a good children's program, nor was he going to look for a church with his music style. But Paul was going not to be served by the church, but to serve the church. And Paul does this by loving on them. Paul utilizes his spiritual gifts of teaching and leadership and discipleship to encourage the church. That's what we read in verse 1. In verse 1, before he left Ephesus, what did he do? He gathered the disciples and encouraged them. And then we go to verse 2, and it says, Paul went through the region of Macedonia. I love how it just takes like four words, but this probably a month of his life, right? So he went through the region of Macedonia and had given them much encouragement. The reason Paul traveled was to encourage the church. 
And he encouraged the church in many different ways. Verse 1, the word encouragement is, in Greek is aspazonai, which means to receive jo- joyfully or to embrace, to draw someone close to you. In verse 2, the word encouragement in Greek is logos, which is the word, the word of God, the doctrine, the teaching. And so when you combine these two, what Paul was doing to encourage the church and to serve the church and to love on the church was to invest in the church by drawing them close and teaching them God's word. It continues in verse 3. It says there in Greece, and probably in Corinth, Paul spent three months. Let's pause there for a second. Paul spent three months in Corinth. If you know anything about the church of Corinth, the church of Corinth was the problem child of all the church plants of Paul. They were the ones who denied Paul's apostleship to undermine his authority. They were the one who, 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 who lashed out in licentious living and really brought shame and discredit to the church. And yet Paul still goes to Corinth and stays there for three months to love the church, to serve the church, to invest in the church. And I think this is so important for us to see because many of you have seen the ugly side of churches. You've seen ugly sides of the churches that you have come from. You've seen the ugly side of this church. And whether it be corrupt leadership or gossiping people or scandalous lies, it may have made you very cynical towards the church. Loving Christ's church does not mean that you have to ignore the shortcomings of the church. But it means that you love the church despite its shortcomings. That you love it despite its warts. Because Christ loves his church. And so Paul stays in Corinth for three months loving the church, ministering to the church, investing in the church. Not only that, but during these three months he actually writes the letter to the Romans that we have in the Bible. And so he's not only investing in the church locally, but he's also investing in the church overseas as he is able. Verse 3 continues. It says, And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and, on the, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Okay, don't say that quick five times in a row. It's hard, hard, it's hard to say right one time in a row. Verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Tros. But we sailed away from Philippi until the day of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Tros, where we stayed for seven days. Again, this reached much like a travel itinerary, but if we dig deeper, we see Paul's investment in the church. First, to get the picture, Paul was going to sail back from Greece to Syria. Can you put the map back up, please? And he was going to sail back from Corinth here, and he was going to go back to his home church, which is in Syria, in Antioch. But he discovers there's a plot against him to take his life during that voyage. I'm guessing killing someone on, the ship, on a ship would have been the best ways to get away with murder in ancient times. I mean, you leave Greece with this number of people, you show up in Syria with one less people, really, who's going to know? And if they do, what are you going to say? Oh, he fell overboard, right? It's, it's pretty easy to get rid of someone. And so Paul, without any great vision or dream, but just common sense, says, 
I'm going to walk home. I'm not going to take the boat, right? And so he journeys back through Macedonia, and this is part of God's plan. And as he travels back through, we see he starts gathering men to himself, that he is training up and discipling to become ministers. First, there is Aristarchus, who was one of the men dragged into the the theater in Ephesus in the last chapter. Later, we know that he actually travels with Paul to Rome and is in prison with Paul at Rome. And then we have Timothy, who became the pastor of the church in Ephesus and would receive the letters from Paul of 1 and 2 Timothy. And then there's Tychicus, who Paul calls later a faithful minister in the Lord. And then there is, of course, Luke, the one who is writing this passage. We see he shows back up as he says, we traveled here, we went here. And so, so, so Luke was traveling with Paul. And so what we see in this list is that Paul was making a trip back through Macedonia to Shros, but along the way he was investing in the church, not just the church at large, but also the church individually through people, raising them up, training them to be leaders in the church. We see in verse 1 through 5 a portrait of a man who loves the church, who is invested in the church, both the local church and the global church, both easy churches and rebellious churches, both the congregation as a whole, but also to individuals. Paul is invested, and I'm convinced that his investment was not only an expression of Paul's love for the church, but it also fueled his love for the church. You see, serving the church and loving on the church, investing in the church, is one way we cultivate our love for the church. If you've been married for any number of years, you know kind of the cycles that love goes through, right? There's that first cycle of love where you're on cloud nine and you can't stop thinking about the person, even if you try and you just want to be around them all the time. And then you go through a couple years of marriage and that, that honeymoon kind of wears off. And it's not that you don't love your spouse anymore, but the love changes, right? Now you have to actually be intentional about it. You have to develop it. You have to grow the love. And as you invest in your partner, your love grows for them. As you love on them, your love grows for them. And that's what happens when we invest in the church. As we love on the church, our love for the church grows. You know, as Jacob's well continues to grow bigger and bigger, There is a propensity towards consumerism to simply slip in and slip out and be completely disconnected from the church. But if you are trusting in Christ, God calls you to invest in the church, to not simply come and fill a seat and drop a buck and grab a cup of coffee, but to utilize your spiritual gifts to invest in Christ's church. You know, the Apostle Paul's gift was teaching and discipleship. And that may not be yours, and that's okay. But how has God uniquely gifted you to invest in love on the church? Maybe he has gifted you with with hospitality and cooking, and so you sign up for the meal train. Maybe he's gifted you with a strong back, not necessarily a spiritual gift, but still a gift from God, and so you help out with the moving ministry. Maybe, maybe God has gifted you with construction, so you still help build things around here. Whatever it might be, God has given you gifts. And it tells us in Ephesians 4 that the reason why God has given you gifts is not so you can hoard it for yourself, not so you can make great profit on it, but so that you can build up the body of Christ. And so we are encouraged to invest in the church. This is how we 
foster our love for the church and declare our love for the church. But we also do that by worshiping with the church. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, this is in Tros now, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. The reason he mentions that is because lamps are like torches and they heat up the room and they suck the oxygen out. Verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I love that part. Talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul has gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the young they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. In this passage we read about a New Testament worship service in the early church. And while it doesn't give us every detail of what should be included in a worship service, it does tell us certain important elements of New Testament worship. First, we see that corporate worship should include the teaching of God's word. Verse 7 again, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. The King James Version translates that. He preached unto them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, I confess that it, nowhere in this passage does it say that Paul was teaching the scriptures, but context is very important. And if you look right after this passage and you look right before this passage, you will be able to tell that scripture was saturating Paul's teaching. Look a little verses, a couple verses later in verse 26. Paul saying to the Ephesian elders, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then if you back up to last chapter, Acts chapter 19, verse 20, we read that as a result of Paul's ministry, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul's teaching was saturated in Scripture, and it was centered on the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Meaning that all of his teaching pointed to the cross. New Testament church services were saturated with the teaching of God's word and the gospel of Christ. The preaching of God's word is central to our worship services. And it was so central at that time that Paul actually preaches until midnight. And in the midst of Paul's talking and talking and talking, there is a young boy there, probably junior high age, named Eutychus. And he falls asleep and he falls out the window and dies. Now you may think, I know what the application is to this. Right? The application is for the preacher. Don't preach so long. You preach so long, people die. Right? That. George Burns once said, the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending than having the two as close together as possible. The reason why this quote is funny, at least to me it's funny, is because it is exposing how silly our values are when it comes to the preaching of God's word. You know, I often ask people, I try to ask people, do you go to church anywhere? Because if they don't, then I'd like to invite them to Jacob's well. 
And if they do go to church somewhere, I'll ask them where they go, and they'll tell me, and I'll, I'll, I'm always trying to learn. So I'll say, what do you like about your church? What do you love about the church? And sometimes they'll say, I love the message. And then I'll ask, great, what do you love about the message? And more times than not, I will get really two things they think make the message great. And it's these two things, that the message is short and that the message is funny. Those are the two things they're looking for in a sermon. Now, I don't know why I went to seminary if that's what makes a message great. You know, my sermons are not necessarily short. Actually, they're not short, and they aren't particularly funny. If those are the two qualifications, I am failing at what I am doing on Sunday mornings. If this is how we categorize a good sermon by being short and funny, it's not really a sermon that we are looking for. A faithful sermon may or may not be funny. A faithful sermon may or may not be short. A faithful sermon is a sermon that proclaims God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not trying to conclude that we need to have really long sermons. You need to, you know, white-knuckle listening and sit there and be patient and be okay with it. I do think this is a special circumstance. I mean, if the Apostle Paul comes to our church, we're probably going to stay up all night too, right? The Apostle Paul comes through town. He's leaving the next day. They want to stay up and they want to listen to him teach. I don't think he was keeping them there against their will. In fact, we read in verse 11, after, after this, the youth dies and Paul raises him to life, we read in verse 11, it says, And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. I mean, a kid dies. A kid dies and Paul keeps preaching. It's like, do you even get the hints? Like, is that what's going on? Paul doesn't get a hint? Like, somebody dies. Maybe it's time to stop preaching. I don't think that's what's going on at all here. You see, I think Paul kept preaching because the people wanted him to. The people were hungry for the word of God because it was the word of life, the good news of the gospel. I don't know about you, but when I first read this passage and I read about Eutychus falling asleep, I just assumed it's because he was bored, because he really didn't want to be there. At least that was usually my occasion while I was in the church. That's why, that's why I would fall asleep. But I think the exact opposite is true. I think the reason why he fell asleep was because he so wanted to be there. Let me give you this example. This past Thursday night was the first game of the NBA Finals. And I'm not a huge NBA fan, but these two teams, the Warriors and the Cavs, have been on a collision course from the beginning of the season. You see, two years ago, the Warriors beat the Cavs to win the championship. And then last year, reverse, and the Cavs beat the Warriors to win the championship. And so here it is, the rubber match, the third time that they're together, and everyone is excited to see what is going to happen, who is going to win this rubber match. And so I was so excited that I let the kids stay up for the first half, and they watched it. And then I came back downstairs so excited to watch the game. And I only made it midway through the third quarter. And then, of course, I wake up after the game, and I drag myself up to bed. You see, the reason I fell asleep wasn't because I didn't want to watch the game. It's because I did want to watch the game. Do you see what I'm saying? For, for this youth, for Eutychus, I don't think he fell asleep because he didn't want to be there. It's because he wanted to be there. He was hungry for the word of God. He was hungry to hear the good news of the gospel. My friends, if God is calling you to connect to a church other than Jacob's, well, that is perfectly fine because that is between you and God. We love having you here, but go where God calls you. But let me encourage you. 
Go to a church that declares the whole counsel of God and not just the parts that agree with their theology. That declare to you the whole counsel of God and not just the easy parts that don't ruffle feathers. Go to a church that proclaims the word of God and proclaims it as good news of Christ and him crucified. And so one important element of corporate worship in the church is the teaching of God's word. The second is partaking of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. That means to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then verse 11, we see after the whole Eutychus thing happened, verse 11 says, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten. You know, one reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper here weekly at Jacob's Well Church is because it seems to be the pattern of the New Testament church, that they gather together weekly for the preaching of God's Word, but also for communion for the Lord's Supper. And the reason they did this is because it is such a valuable gift from God to us. You know, some people think taking communion uh, shouldn't happen weekly because then we start to take it casually. We start to take it for granted, which could certainly happen. But we must be careful not to do that. You see, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful and a wonderful and a powerful sacrament given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a visible, tangible, touchable, consumable proclamation of the gospel, reminding of Christ's death and resurrection. And like the preaching of God's word, when it is received by repentance and faith, it nourishes our souls. And it reminds us of our union and our communion with Christ and with one another as as those elements are united and communed within our own bodies. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful and a wonderful thing, but it's also an awesome and a dangerous thing. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians church, that, that church had the, the problem child church. He said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is a serious warning. This is why every week we fence the table and say, if you have unrepentant sin, if you do not trust in Christ, do not come to the table. You know, I'm concerned about so many churches that I go to and communion is more like trick-or-treat than anything. Come one, come all. No discernment needing. Come and eat. We love you. We want you to be a part of this. And I think their motivations are right. They want to include people and welcome people, but it is dangerous for their souls. It is actually dangerous for their physical bodies. Some get sick and die by taking in an improper manner. Think of it like a medicine cabinet. You know, which of you parents would open up your medicine cabinet and say, kids, go to it. Have whatever you want. None of us would do that because while we know that medicine can be a helpful power, it can also be a lethal power if it's taken improperly. The same is true of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that the Lord's Supper is a memorial to the cross of Christ, but it is far more. There is power in the Lord's Supper. And when you receive it in rebellion, it is power to bring judgment upon you. But when you receive it by faith and repentance, it is power to nourish your soul. 
And so we cultivate our love for the church by loving on the church through worshiping together. And we worship through the rightful teaching of God's word, through partaking of the Lord's Supper, but thirdly, by rejoicing in the resurrection. Verse 7 again says, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together. Why does it mention the first day of the week? Maybe a more important question is, why were they gathering on the first day of the week? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, when did the people of God gather together? The seventh day of the week, right? It was rooted in creation. They gathered on Saturdays to worship the Lord. And so why is it here and other places in the New Testament, the church is gathering together on the first day of the week? Why are they gathering together on Sundays? Well, because Sunday is a remembrance of really the most important thing of our faith, the linchpin of our faith, the linchpin of Christianity. Sunday was the day of Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says, And if Christ has not been raised, if he hasn't been raised, if Christ is still in the grave, if someone stole his body, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Friends, this means that if Christ has not been been raised, that all of us are still under the condemnation of our sin. But the good news is this. Christ did raise from the dead. And it's not just that Christ has risen. It's that Christ is risen. Christ gives us newness of life. Certain hope and a relationship with God and eternity with him because of his resurrection. How fitting it is that we have this story of Eutychus in the midst of this. A boy who dies and Paul comes to and says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And then they take the youth away, it says later in verse 12. And they are not a little comforted. Not a little comforted. Now that is... Not proper English, but it is proper Greek. The double negative, not a little comforted, is to emphasize something. That they were greatly comforted by this boy returning to life. Christian, you should be not a little comforted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from the resurrection, there is great despair. But in the resurrection, there is great comfort for our souls. That just as Christ rose from the dead, so shall we for all eternity to be with him. We cultivate our love for the church by joining together in worship. You know, there are Christians that I know who who claim to be Christians but do not go to church. And could it be that they're Christians and don't go to church? It sure could be true. But just as it could be true that you could be married and never go home, right? Just because it's true that you're married and don't go home doesn't mean it's wise that you never go home, nor is it logical. As a matter of fact, it's nonsense. And so if you see church as this optional thing that you do every once in a while, it is completely illogical with God's love for the church and his calling upon your life. And so God calls us to cultivate our love for Christ's church by worshiping together through the teaching of God's word and participation in the Lord's Supper and celebrating the resurrection. Finally, God calls us to cultivate our love for the church and to proclaim it by cherishing the church. Now, I know it says something a bit different in your bulletin. It changed yesterday. It happens. 
But as we continue with Paul's travels, we see how much he cherishes the church. Verse 13 says, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, he took him on board, and, and we went to Metilene. So if you look at the map really quick again, you'll see they were here in Tros, and they took the boat around to Assos. Paul walked there for some reason, and then they took the boat down here to however you pronounce that city. <laughs> and then as we continue to read on, you'll see they'll continue this journey down to Miletus. So I'll continue reading. Verse 15, it says, And settling from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios, and next day we touched at Samos. And the next day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, as we first read verse 16, it does not seem like Paul is cherishing the church at Ephesus. It seems more like Paul is stiff-arming the church at Ephesus. But most commentators agree that the reason he's hastening on is because he cherishes the church. You see, he wanted to get back for Pentecost. And they knew, and Paul knew that if he stopped in Ephesus, he would not be able to get out of there in any short time because they cherished one another. Paul so cherished the people of Ephesus, and the people of Ephesus so cherished Paul that they would have wanted them to come into their house, to teach them, to dine with them, to stay with them. And he could not have pressed on to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Now we know Paul does not give a stiff arm to the church at Ephesus because in the very next verse, in verse 17, we read about how Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come down so he can give them a powerful and tear-filled farewell speech. And so Paul cherishes that church, but we also see his cherishing of the church in his zeal and his mission to return to Jerusalem. As verse 16 says, he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, why would Paul want to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost? Why was Pentecost such a big deal for Paul? Well, my guess is Paul wanted to get back for Pentecost because Pentecost was the anniversary of the church. Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit filled God's people. It's when the gospel was proclaimed, when souls were saved, when 3,000 new believers were baptized and formed the church. And they gathered together and they praised God. And the church was born on Pentecost. I think Paul wanted to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost because Paul cherished the church and wanted to celebrate the church and declare his love for the church with the church. You know, I love it when my kids have birthdays because it is an opportunity that I have to show them how much I cherish them, how much I delight in them. I get to lavish gifts and special treats upon them. Sometimes with my kids, we have like three or four birthday parties in a given week because we do one with our family, just me and them. We do it with friends. But it's an opportunity to say, this is how much I love you. That's what Pentecost was. It was an opportunity to say, this is how much we love the church that Christ loves. Paul wanted to get back to celebrate the church, the, the birthday, the anniversary of the establishment of the church. I don't know if you are aware of this. I actually was not aware of this until Thursday, so a few days ago. But do you know what today is? Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's funny, God has a sense of humor like that, doesn't he? Where providentially he puts these passages in these times. 
And so this is an opportunity, this is a great day to say, Lord, today, renew my love for the church. Let me celebrate and rejoice in the church. It is appropriate for us to celebrate Pentecost and to celebrate by cherishing and rejoicing over and celebrating the church that Christ has created. Let me end with this. Jason Steger worked here a while back. He helped plant Jacobswell Church. Many of you probably remember him. But Jason had a t-shirt that he would wear. And the t-shirt on the front would say, I love my wife, okay? And when he would wear this shirt around town, people would always be looking at the back of his shirt because they were waiting for the punchline, right? Like, I love my wife when she lets me go fishing, right? Or something like that. But there was no punchline. He simply was saying, I love my wife. Now, was his wife perfect? By no means. She would not say she's perfect. If you know Marcia, she'd be very transparent about that. And last time I checked, she's not Jesus. She's not perfect. And yet he says, I love my wife. If you've ever read through the book of Hosea, you know that God loves his church, not because she is perfect. In fact, she is far from perfect, but he loves the church because she is his bride. Jesus loves us. He loves his church because we are his bride. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Why did he give himself up for her? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ did not love the church because she was without blemish. He did not love the church because she was unstained or unwrinkled or because she was holy. He did not love her for those reasons. He loved those to work those things into her, to cleanse her, to wash her clean, to wrinkle out, to iron out all of the wrinkles, and to present him them to himself as a spotless bride. Ephesians 5 continues and says, No one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And so it's saying the church is Christ's body, and he cherishes it because we are members of his body. And then it ends with this interesting statement. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this statement, which seems almost out of nowhere. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you hate the church, or if you are indifferent towards the church, you are saying to Jesus, I hate your wife. You are saying, I hate my body. I hate myself because you are a part of the church if you trust in Christ. But as you hate the church, you are also saying, I hate Jesus because he and the church have become one flesh. Friends, the church is far from perfect. But by investing our lives in the church, by worshiping regularly with the church, by cherishing the church, let us echo the heart of our Savior and our God and let us declare with one voice, proclaiming with him, I love Christ's church. Let's pray.
Lord God, we come confessing that we often take the church for granted. Or we often see it as maybe our opponent or our enemy, God. Forgive us for that. For you have seen all of her sins and yet you love her and delight in her and cherish her and have redeemed her. Lord, give us your heart for your church. Let us go out proclaiming this this very odd statement to the world that we love the church with no qualifications. We love the church even though it is so messed up by us. We love the church because she is your bride. Because you are united to her. And because the church is us who trust in you. Lord, as we turn to your table, remind us of how precious this meal is, Lord. Lord, if there's anyone here who is in unrepentant sin or who does not yet trust in you, God, may they have the courage to be authentic with themselves and with you, God. And may they not take of this supper lest they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. But for us who do, who take it in repentance and faith, even weak faith, Lord, we thank you that it will nourish our souls to love you and to serve you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.